Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we ask the question, how do you know how much is enough? You know, one of the reasons I love this question so much is that there is no one right answer. Like if you put 100 people together and ask them the question, I guarantee no two people will say the same thing. Right. Yeah. And and even how to figure it out would be different. Like how much is enough? Like the actual amount is one thing and then how to figure it out is another. Because everybody's in so many, so many different situations, you know, financially speaking, in just general mm-hmm. life, that it's a highly personal answer, you know, process and answer. And uh, I'm acutely aware of this at the moment because I've been writing about a, a sort of related topic of lifestyle inflation mm. on my mailing list and in, in the the. Ditcherville comic this weekend, and I'm getting all of these replies that are um, from different perspectives, of course. Like some people are just like, yeah, but what about people who are living on minimum wage? Or what about this? Or what about that? Or or um, just completely resonating with them. They're like, oh, you know, God, I feel so seen or like wrestling with this right now, stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, what if I have kids and all that? And I mean, the if we're if we talk about enough in terms of, if we talk about it just to begin with, in terms of financial, you know, business, if this is for, you know, people listening here are probably soloists or small firms and they are business owners and they have, I would say, generally speaking, a lot more control over what their income looks like in any given year, more so than someone who's trying to climb up a corporate ladder, for example. Yeah. Like people like us can really step on the gas if we have a slow quarter or something. Yeah. Or we can take our foot off the gas. Right. So the question is like, like, how do I know when to take the, you know, should I just keep the gas pedal matted to the floor the whole time? Right. Because that's the, (laughs) the, the possibility exists to just mash that pedal to the floor until you burn out or until, until you decide it's enough, right? Like you can, you hopefully, hopefully if everything goes well, you have to decide when to take your foot off the gas. Otherwise, you'll just go, you know, screaming off to the horizon and, you know, at, a, at breakneck speeds. So at a certain point, you ha- you have to think about this. Well, and th- what happens a lot in my experience is is that we go past enough to too much. Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're spending time like rolling it back, like dialing it back. What do I have to do so this is enough? Not too much, not too little, right. you know. Goldilocks just right. Yes. But here's here's the trap, right? Though not though or not but, but there's a trap there that I see lots of people fall into, at least Americans, where you zoom past enough, now you've got extra, more than you need, and so your lifestyle increases. And that and once you increase your lifestyle, that becomes a need. It feels like a need because mm-hmm. nobody wants to lower their lifestyle. Right. So once you buy that new big house, wow, I had a great year. Let's upgrade to the big house on the corner. And now that's a tough, that's a tough decision to undo. It becomes easier to wait for it, step on the gas and make more money. So it's this kind of arms race between your, your desires and your income. And since we have so much control over our income, more so than a W2 employee, it, it the it's not an impossible path to be like oh well 
you know, really want to take the kids to Disney, really want to upgrade the house, really want to put a new roof on the garage. I'll just make more money. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like you, you end up working, you, you can end up in this trap where you're the gilded hamster wheel, where you're working like a dog to support a, a lifestyle that is always, it's like chronically on the edge of what you can afford. Yes. Yes, that's that's a really good way to describe it because there it's never enough. And it's not even that we sit there and go, oh, what I have isn't enough. It's just, ooh, look at that. Yeah. I, what if we had that? What would that be like? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it's, I, I like to think that our listeners are not like, you know, blindly grabbing for the next thing. But, you know, you see things like you're in a neighborhood and all of a sudden everybody else has a new car yep. this year. Everybody else has a new, in California it would be like a, about the, like the wall around your property or the <laughs> garage door, right? The yeah. $50,000 garage door. So, yeah, I mean, we, uh, what's that expression? We covet what we see yeah and around in my neighborhood there are a lot of the the big sort of corporate employer around here is cvs and you can tell when bonuses go out because everybody's got a new bmw or mercedes (laughs) or whatever and so there's the keeping up with the joneses thing but there's also the oh i've been working so hard i deserve Deserve this this trip to paris or i deserve this whatever fancy car you know so it gets into this I mean, personal finance is not really territory that we get into too often, but this is the, I think this is specifically around business owners who do have a lever that they can push to increase their income to, you know, to get these things they think they want, which then turn into what feel like needs. And anyway, so that that's the subject. So like, how do you, how do you, how do you get to the place where you're like, no, I'm, I'm good. This this is enough in terms of money to get stuff or lifestyle stuff or whatever. Because for for me, I feel like this this boils down. I'm trying to think of anything this boils down to other than lifestyle inflation. Oh, oh, I think it's more than that. Like, what else does what else will cause you to not never never think enough is enough? Well, it's some people are driven internally by voices from their past right? My dad said I'd never amount to anything. So I've got to do this. Like, look Mm. at the billionaire, the race of the billionaires, like who's going to go to Mars first? Okay, yeah, that is a good one. Who has the most toys when they die? Like all those things. And I'm not saying that's our audience, but I'm saying there is that thing out there. But I think the way that I'm kind of thinking about this, and we don't usually talk about things this way, but I think there's a personal box and there's a business box. And what happens because we own businesses and we have personal lives is that they intermingle so much a lot of times. And yeah, we may have you know financial structures or legal structures in place to separate business from personal. But for most of us, our personal desires drive what we will do in our business. Sure. And so yeah. it's almost like if if we can go through the exercise with our partner or with our families on you know what personally is enough, and then you, you can I, I don't like the term lifestyle business, but you could define your business in such a way that it allows you to do that. So just as an example, let's say you sit down with your spouse and you decide that you're really working too much. The idea of going out on your own was that you were going to have more time to do some fun stuff, let's say in the summer as yep. a family. And so you agree, you know what? 
I'm going to take a month off in the summer, or I'm going to take every Friday off, whatever that looks like. And maybe you take a hit on income, maybe you don't. Maybe you do something differently and you wind up making more money when you're working less. But you kind of go through that exercise. And I think sometimes we don't go through that exercise. We just say, well, I made $100,000 at my other job, so I have to make 100000 here. And until you make that first 100000 you feel like you're in a hole, a deep hole. Right. And, and the, so, so we don't have those discussions a lot of times. Right. So the success metric is this number when, when you know, the, real, in the example you just gave, the real success metric is, is the number. But the story we told ourselves about going solo was to have, a, have more time with the family, let's say. Mm-hmm. But, but so there's like a disconnect there in that particular example. Yeah. And like I, I, I'm trying, I'm like looking for an example from my life. You know, any longtime listener of the show knows that I'm really into not working that much in terms of stuff I don't want, not stuff I don't want to do, but stuff you have to pay me to do. So like Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of stuff I do that, that people, some people would categorize as work that I do not categorize as work like this podcast like my other podcasts, talking to smart people about fun stuff to me, I just can't force myself to categorize that as work. Um, there are, you know, emotionally demanding aspects of coaching people that I, I do have to consider work. It's, you know, stuff that, uh, you know, I need to be paid for because it's, it's, it takes a lot of mental mm-hmm. effort. It's stressful. Uh, and you delivering, you know, transformations to people is valuable to them. Anyway, the point is that I'm probably pretty far on one end of this spectrum in terms of, you know, I would say for the past six, six years, I've had a pretty good de facto definition of what's enough in terms of, uh, finances, annual income, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But still, I always want to make more than I did last year. I, there was yeah. with, with one exception. One year, I I was made a decision that I knew was going to uh, be like a twenty percent hit, and it was almost exactly twenty percent hit. But other than that, other than making a strategic sort of business model change, I don't like the feeling of not hitting that previous number, even if yeah. the six, even if my, you know, one of my success metrics, let's say, what is that. Uh, I was very happy with the number of hours I did I spent doing things that I would consider work, the the hard stuff on my income projection spreadsheet. So, so it's there's just more than one thing that I look at, I guess, and one of them seems really artificial. The numbers one seems really artificial. But we're entrepreneurs and we look at those <laughs> and and then it's like we're American. Sometimes I think that's our problem. <laughs> we're American and we yeah. look and go, okay, let's be competitive. How did we do last year? Yeah, to, to me, it's not a competitive thing. It's a canary in the coal mine thing. It's like, wait, did I hit the top? Oh, okay. Is it all going to go away? Right. Oh, okay. Okay. That, well, that, that's a very real like existential fear. Right. So- um, it's, it's more like that. It's not a competitive mm. thing. It's like, uh, it's, it's more like a bad, it, it's a harbinger of doom potentially. So that's, okay. it doesn't feel good. Okay. So um, for me, it's competitive. I like to, with myself mm-hmm. because I don't compete with anybody else. Right. Right. So yeah, I like it to be bigger than last year. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So 
I've been getting a lot of one of the one of the threads that I've been getting in the replies was about what you just mentioned, which is the United States thing, where, you know, one of the people asked, I said something like I was talking about the arms race of of like, oh, I, I make more money. I've been working so hard to earn this money. I deserve to blow it on stuff that <laughs> that uh, that instead of putting it away for a rainy day or whatever. It's like, uh, finally, finally I can get that Rolex that I've been promising myself or whatever. And, uh, and the question was, you know, do you think this is just a U.S. thing? Can you imagine it being a, um, can you imagine what, what would it take for that to change in the United States? And I was like, I don't know, like maybe Buddhism becoming the predominant religion. Like I have no idea what could change that about yeah. the United States culture, that kind of competitive I, I, entrepreneurial, you know, it comes from within too. I mean, yes, we're, we're obviously we're affected by what we see and the ads around us and social media, all the beautiful, shiny things on Instagram. But I think, you know, a lot of it too is our own relationship with ourselves and our stuff, and it's that's complicated. I don't think that changes in a mm. a generation or two. Yeah, even, it, like starts to sadly. It taps into status, which is I, I I don't know this, but I have to imagine that that's not a U.S. thing. That feels like an evolutionary thing. Uh, you know, yeah. Whatever the status symbols are for the particular culture that you're in, I feel yeah, go like, back in time to any culture as far back as you can possibly. Th- think of and there was was always something we had kings we had royalty mm. we had you know certain color feathers that you could wear that indicated <laughs> that you were a, a better warrior right um or you had a different uh, headdress or footwear or waistcoat i mean yeah it's been around forever as long as people right so there i, I can think of a few though where there are these visible status symbols that don't cost money so things like physical fitness or mm. uh, in martial arts, the color of your belt, like the, the black belt thing originally came from, you know, everybody started out with a white belt. And the more you got thrown on the ground, the dirtier it got until it was black. And so that doesn't cost that's you any the money. history of that. Well, that's a yeah. very cool thing. Right. It's just a dirty belt from, from doing the work. <laughs> so that's, you know, but I, I would agree with you that, that I'm just like scanning over sort of historical trends that I'm familiar with and a lot of them are money related income related yeah, it used to be being fat was a status symbol right. because it meant you had enough money to eat well right yeah so other than raising the, the topic other than calling attention to the uh oh you've been working so hard you deserve it you know <laughs> and like spontaneously buying stuff off of Instagram ads or whatever then so I think awareness, of course, is the first step to be like, oh, do I really want this? And there's all these tricks that I do think work. I, I said it in kind of a dismissive way, but they're just so almost trite. It's like, you know, put stuff in your Amazon, put it in safe for later or put it in your cart, but don't buy it for 24 hours. Anything that you want to buy, you know, wait 24 hours, all of that stuff. And I, I think well, that probably works. I, I, I think I would come at it more from the ground up. So 
maybe one way to think about this is I mentioned before, like two boxes, like there's the personal box and the business box. And, and there's so many personal finance gurus. I mean, pick the one that whose advice you want to follow. But one of the ones I really like is uh, I like what Ramit Sethi has to say about cutting your expenses to the bone on things that don't matter to you mm-hmm. and spending lavishly on the things that do. And, and he has a, you know, a system where you on how you send your money and where so that your that assumption um, means that you're saving long term, like for retirement investment, shorter term, maybe you want to have a child or you want a big wedding, you know, or you want a big travel, those kinds of things. So when I, I think there is a definition of personal basic enoughness mm-hmm. um, for people in our kinds of work. I mean, I, I'm not saying this about everybody because it's not accessible for everybody. Right. But ideally, you know, you've got, um, you know, whatever enough money is, right? You have money so you're not, there's a roof over your head, there, you're, you're fed, you're warm or cool enough. Um, you can save some for retirement, college for your kids, um, to give to causes that you care about have an emergency fund and have some of the right kinds of insurance so you protect yourself. Like that's, I think of that as sort of the basic. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't put like a number on that. Is that 75,000? Is it 100? Is it 500? I mean, it's whatever number you want to put on it, mm-hmm. right? But it's, but having those other things too. So if you're making, uh, let me just dial back for a second. Back when in my big firm days, I worked for one of the, uh, with one of the big universities and they had these, um, uh, medical professors. They were doctors, but they were also on staff, and they got just uh, salary. And some of these folks were, and this is quite a while ago, were making just south of $500,000, and they had no money. Like, they spent every single cent. And some of them even had housing as part of their, you know, allowance. And it's so, so that number needs to be what you want it to be. But even if it's $500,000 or a million dollars, you still want some consistency in how that money comes in. You want to have an emergency fund if something happens like a pandemic. You want to have the right insurance. So if, if your spouse gets hit by a bus, you're going to be able to uh, get them the health care they need and the rehab they need to come back. Like it's having all of those things, whatever the number, it's having all of those things. And then it's having that conversation, that really hard conversation with your partner, if you have one, about what that looks like for the two of you together. Mm-hmm. And I think it just gets complicated, like when you have kids. Um, you know, I, I have uh, clients who have kids in private school, and that's not negotiable. Like, that's part of their expenses. And so right. you and I could go, oh, yeah, just, you know, homeschool, send the kids to uh, to public school. But if you're paying, you know, fifty to $100,000 a year after taxes for tuition, yeah. your enough number is a heck of a lot higher than ours is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, the number is going to be the number is going to be totally different for everyone. I, that's no doubt. I, I the, the thing that I find the most interesting is the blindness to the concept and i it comes from the once you once you have stuff then you've got this i mean it's a psychological phenomenon uh i forget the name of it but it's like endowment bias i think where stuff you have is worth more to you than you would 
would pay for it if you didn't own it. So oh. you see this all the time with like people who, you know, want to sell their 72 Camaro for $10,000 and like nobody's willing to give them more than a thousand. <laughs> and, and in fact, they wouldn't buy it for more than a thousand if they didn't have it. Right. Right. And, and so the, so personally, one thing about me that is unusual in my experience is that I am really, really conscious about increasing some aspect of our, of our lifestyles, because I know that that becomes the new normal. And mm -hmm. there's no, there's basically no going back short of a major life event, you know, like, like downsizing the house because the kids are going to college or something or um, like a health thing, like you said, mm -hmm. you, or, you know, or like later, much later stage, life, hopefully much later stage of life stuff. So, so I'm really, so for an example from the recent past, if you've been on my mail, if you were on my mailing list, probably in, it was probably 2018, 2019, I was writing a lot of articles about luxury uh, wristwatches. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. A friend of mine had gotten me into it. I got sucked into it and, and I started to develop a sort of taste, not an aficionado, but I started to develop a taste for watches. I started noticing them all the time, like in public, I'd notice people's watches and I could tell a cheap one from an expensive one or, or a junk one from a nice one or be like, Oh, that one's, that guy's cool. He's got a SKX 007, you know, like, <laughs> like I, I started to, I was just in the beginning of turning into a watch guy and I caught myself on like the Rolex site one night late being like, ah, this one, this one, this is the one, this is, this would be totally reasonable. Oh, I know I, it was in 2019 because I almost bought myself a Rolex when I got my black belt. And, uh, uh. and, and the story I was going to tell myself, the, the story I told myself I would tell people when they asked me about the watch, and this was barely conscious, was like, oh, I, you know, yeah, it's a Rolex, but I, you know, I got it as a, a present to myself when I got my black belt. And then I wouldn't be douchey for having a Rolex. <laughs> Well, I was actually equating the emotion of it, which is it felt like a positive thing. If you can afford the watch and you want the watch and it marks something, but that was just a story. Right. You were telling yourself, not the reality. Well, I think all of it's a story. So it's just a it's just a, a story inside of a story. Yeah. So and I it was a wake up call. I was like, this doesn't end well. This turns into <laughs> me having a hundred thousand dollar collection of watches. And that, and if that meant I had to work like an extra hour, it's not worth it. Like if yeah. that meant that, that Life energy, uh, it's just like it's gazingas pin, a $10,000 gazingas pin or 30,000 mm -hmm. or a hundred thousand. And I just, I was like, and, and so I had to consciously, consciously make myself not a watch guy anymore. I unsubscribed from the daily mailing list. I got rid of all the books. I gotten a whole bunch of books for Christmas, you know, watch books for Christmas people gave me. I got rid of all that stuff and that was it. That's an abstinence. Like keep right. it totally away from me because right. I think, you know, when we moved to Palm Springs, I really I'd always been interested in design, but my my leanings were mostly more like European and then it's all modernism here. And I've so I've studied it now for like five years and it's fascinating. But I I don't have the need 
to buy like a $30,000 console to say that, oh, look at this, <laughs> you know, this name brand within a very, you know, small little design world. I do love looking at them. And I love seeing when they come on and seeing, you know, like, what are they priced at at an auction site? What do they go for? So, I mean, it's interesting, but it's not something that I have to own myself. Right. You can appreciate it without owning it. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's what I learned from, you mentioned Gazinga's pin. That's from uh, Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robbins and Joe Dominguez. He's deceased, but Vicky's still... Um, talking about it and has written a follow-on. It's like you, gazingas pins are things that you just buy and you almost unconsciously, like you go to the store and you see a, a pink t-shirt and you're like, oh, I need one in every color. You know, like my gazingas pins are books. I mean, when BookBub sends me that list every day, pretty much every day I'll buy at least one book. And since I don't read a whole book every day, I have quite a collection of things I haven't read yet. So it's it's being conscious of what we do. And if we can rewire it, which is what you did. I mean, I'm actually really impressed that you were able to do that. That's unusual for a lot of people. It's almost like you said, oh, this is an addiction. Right. And so I can't gamble anymore. I can't drink anymore. I can't do drugs anymore. Mm-hmm. Done. It was weird. And, and here's the thing. Here's how I sort of, the thing that I had to do was not expose myself to it anymore. So like I've said many times to people about, you know, I don't have, cause a lot, a lot of people think I'm really disciplined because the karate thing and the daily email list and all that. And maybe I am, I don't, I don't feel that way though. I just, I just feel like I'm smart about it where like I, I make it easy for myself. Like I am very disciplined in the supermarket, but I'm not disciplined at 11 at night next to the Oreos. <laughs> Right. Thank but I God. won't buy the Oreos. <laughs> I just, I'm smart. Cause I know if I, if the Oreos are in the house, I'm probably going to eat them. Yep. You know, but if they call to you. Yeah. But if they're not in the house and that's a much easier decision to make, it's like, I know I don't want, I definitely don't want them right now. So why would I, and I know I don't want to want to eat them later. Mm-hmm. So why, why get them? Right. So it, it's like, uh, it's co- sort of like just awareness, self-awareness or self-knowledge where it's like, well, if these are in the house, it's danger of Will Robinson. So instead of even being tempted, I'll just avoid the temptation. And that's what it was with the watches. I had to avoid the temptation. Yeah. And developing a taste. Honestly, we could we could probably debate this, but developing a taste in anything is very dangerous. You know who else wrote about this? Actually, Ramit wrote about this recently because somebody asked him, like, how do you, because he has some high-end things he likes, like cashmere anything mm-hmm. and big, long, expensive, um, activity-laden trips. And they're mm-hmm. like, so how do you, like, think, I think his one of his money rules is any flight over four or five or six hours, you go business class. So they're like, how how do you know that you can do that and, like, not, like, suddenly have to give that up and then it's painful versus never having had it at all exactly and what he said was you know it depends on the thing but one of the things he does is he tries to make sure that there's enough money to do whatever it is for at least two years Mm -hmm. figuring you know you can always make more money right Right. so he said so if it's like a big thing like it's a house then obviously that's gonna require a lot more but if it's uh you know buying cashmere 
um, what did he say? He bought like cashmere, like running pants or something or lounge <laughs> pants, like something, you know, I, I just imagine it. Well, Hey, you know, we all have the things we love. So, uh-huh. you know, like it's a, I don't know, a couple grand to buy something like that. So he's like, so, you know, you, you don't do that until you know that you're okay otherwise. So mm-hmm. there are some things you can do. I think the the thing that strikes me though, is I, I like to think of it not as, like punishment and having to take something away, but choosing very carefully what we welcome in. Yeah. Right. I mean that like, that way it feels more abundant versus punitive. I oh, never yeah. do well with punitive stuff. Like I'm impressed you could do the watch thing. I would have had a hard time doing that. Well, I'm t- well, if I had bought one, it would have been a different story. I was right at the edge. Yeah. So. I mean, I bought some, you know, four or five hundred dollar watches, but you know, but I didn't get into four figures or five. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I'm a, t- I'm terrible at belt tightening. Terrible. I'm like not one of those. Oh, just skip one latte a week type of people. But f- from the the, it's it's more at a macro level for me where I could see, you know, like I said, people bought people were starting to know that I was a. a becoming a watch guy let's say so they started giving me watch related presents Mm -hmm. and stuff oh yeah and so then it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling it turns into an identity which we've talked about that's where i was going yeah yeah and and i i really don't like stuff i mean uh, i i moved across country or, or down all the way down from the northeast to the south in a two seater you know like i i don't have stuff. I don't like stuff. I don't like I. Uh, you know that that uh, what is it a uh, a Buddha thing? Like e- each of my possessions is but a stone around my neck. Like I feel that. Mm-hmm. So when I when I start to develop, I love that you're married to a maximalist. I know when she, <laughs> you when two she balance down, each other out. <laughs> when she moved down to join me once we bought the house, it was like a gigantic moving truck. Um, <laughs> right. So if I know we, opposites attract. Yeah. If I had stuff, we need a bigger house. So, <laughs> but I just don't like, I, I feel like it owns me. I really, I, I like the feeling of like, you know, God forbid if the house burnt down, there's nothing I would miss. There's not a thing in here that I couldn't replace tomorrow if, with very rare exceptions. And one of them was my 40th birthday present. And the other one is like just a, beautiful guitar but i could replace that too it's nothing there's no story behind it mm-hmm. i would be it would just be expensive I mean, we have insurance i mean i i'm just not nostalgic about things so when i find myself um developing a taste it's really that like like i drink cheap beer i drink cheap wine i don't i just don't see the point of teaching myself that it's bad <laughs> you know what i'm saying like it's good enough like it's good enough it doesn't need to be a hundred dollars a bottle and but if i started going to wine tasting and becoming a wine guy it would taste bad you know so i don't know if i'm just well or you could become or, it's really interesting because what i'm hearing is like you have this it's all or it's nothing Right. And so you could be a wine connoisseur who doesn't have to spend a hundred dollars a bottle because you can appreciate that there's one that's, I don't know, 18, that's really good from an up and coming vintner. I don't know. But yeah, it's, I mean, this, it's, this is so fascinating listening to, to how you think about 
this. And that's kind of our point, right? Is everybody thinks about this a little differently. You're saying, I don't want to get a taste for certain things. And maybe that's also another way of saying, um, those things don't really matter that much to me, or I, exactly. I probably would. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really what it is. It's almost like out of boredom that I would develop a taste in, in watches or a taste for wine. It's just like, it would almost be out of boredom. Yeah. yeah I, I don't d- really I- care. I don't care. I just read something recently, and I can't remember if it was in like a a novel or a nonfiction book. And they said something like, we spend most of our our early lives, and by early, they meant like to maybe 50, um, acquiring. Like, and especially if you have kids, you you have a house, you have a bigger house, and then the kids move out and you start deaccessioning, right? Yeah. So we spend most of it acquiring, especially, and, and when I say acquiring, I mean people on the upper income spectrum. And then we spend the next part deacquiring. Yeah. We get rid of stuff and it's more open and it's all of a sudden it's quiet. You get a smaller house. And you st- so I think some of that happens. It's almost like we're on autopilot sometimes. I know plenty of people who aren't, but who are on autopilot when you're raising kids because there's a, you have a society that you're living within. Right. Like a, my um, brother-in-law, where they live, everybody has four or five bedroom houses, and their kids are all grown but one, and they just bought a new five-bedroom house. I'm like, why do you want a five-bedroom house? There's no kids here. Right. Do you really need five bedrooms? But it's kind of the norm. Yeah. Well, the story they tell themselves is like, well, when they come home for holidays, we want a place for everyone, you know. I know. And they'll have kids and want this. You know, and and again, that's all fine. I mean, I'm I'm not poo-pooing the dream. Like, Mm -hmm. that's his dream. That's what he should have. He can afford it. Great. You know, enjoy the dream. But let's just be conscious about what the dream is, I think. Yeah. Um, Now, ironically, this morning, I read in the New York Times, I was reading a really interesting obituary. I don't always read them, but this one was. And I've never heard of him before. His name was Charles Feeney, and he was a gazillionaire. (laughs) Um, I think he died in his early 90s. And he was the guy behind the duty-free shops at all the airports. Hmm. He invented that like back in the 50s or 60s. And so sometime in the late 90s, he decided that he wanted to give all of his money away while he was alive. And he had um, he and his long-term wife, who was the mother of their, I think, five children, um, they divorced in the 90s. And he gave her all the houses. They had like seven houses mm-hmm. and some kind of a settlement. He supposedly gave settlements to each of his kids you know, in line with their expectations. He said it was modest. Who knows? Who cares? Mm. Um, And then he remarried and he decided, I'm going to start giving this away. And he did most of it anonymously Mm. until his, uh, there was some kind of a disclosure requirement when his, he he kind of got outed that it was him. But he kept something like $2 million for himself and his wife. He stopped, he only flew coach. He sold his airplanes. He sold his limousines. He sold the houses that he had reacquired. And they lived in a in a, a small modest apartment in San Francisco mm-hmm. and gave it literally gave it all away yeah and so i just think how hard that would be to your earlier point to go backwards and and his the reasoning in in the obituary was that he wanted he had grown up in i think it was new jersey in a working class Irish American family. And he said, I want to be able to face the guys that I grew up with. I want to have those values. I want to be a good guy. I don't really want to be the guy that is, you know, acquiring all the toys. And I mean, it was, if you haven't, 
I would recommend New York Times Charles Feeney obituary. <laughs> what a story. Wow. So my point in all that is it kind of doesn't matter where you are. We're always thinking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to tap into something you, you mentioned earlier about the sort of phases of life. Because I think that that's one of the other threads that came in on the on the list when I was talking about this stuff, and and looking at my own life, you know, I did I did a little napkin math while I was in these conversations, and my baseline financial requirements from my in my twenties were X, and in now in my fifties, thirty years later, are something like twenty X. <laughs> And that sounds about right. Part of that is a function of, you know, I, I lived on $200 a week and one winter lived in a van. So, you know, I was like my income, like I could get by on almost nothing. And there's some macroeconomic inflation type stuff in there. But but the vast majority of that increase is directly related to decisions I made about how I wanted to spend my time, you know, getting mm-hmm. married, having kids, having dogs, um, you know, the neighborhood we moved, you know, all of these things, buying houses, all that stuff. And there, and it, it really was my thirties where the S curve really took off. You know, I went from, I don't know how old I've been. It doesn't matter. Late twenties, early thirties, early. I was about, yeah, it would have been 2003. So I was 31. And it, for like that year through, yeah, basically my thirties, uh, and into forties before we had, I had our first was born when I just turned 41, that 10 year period, it skyrocketed. I mean, we were both working, no kids. Uh, you know, Erica had a great job. Uh, she was making more than me and we were just like, oh my God, the money we would drop in Nordstrom on shoes or like eating out five <laughs> nights a week and you know, you name it. Well, yeah, the party continues forever. Yeah. We never got into cars. We never got into um, boats or uh, other sort of toys that would be the that you know the kinds of things that you would acquire in that phase. Uh, but then, like you said, once kid number one was born, there there became a new gravitational pull in the family unit, and um, you know radical behavior change in terms of daily routine. Eric uh, left the corporate life and you know stay-at-home mom so like huge huge you know like lifestyle change so that that's one of those things i i said before it's like you're probably not going to go backwards or even flatten out unless there's some big life change and you know then we had a second and it really 40s to 50s it really i mean it really didn't didn't really change that much it hasn't really changed that much you lived in the same house that whole time. Yeah, we've been in this house sixteen years, and we're not, yeah. we'll never. Yeah, we'll die in this okay. house. Like we're not moving. <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've come close a couple times, and both times we were like, "Thank God we didn't move." Yeah. Well, no, because that's one of the things sometimes people do is they get a bigger house, and then right. that kind of skews things. But yeah, yeah. We had a neighbor that kind of did that, and they made this move, and they made it really complicated because they made it contingent on the sale of their existing home, mm. which is almost unheard of in a hot market. But they got the deal, and then, but they had like it was like literally like three different parties. There were three different houses that all had to close on the same day, <laughs> and move, and like all this stuff, uh. and then. 
And luckily, they were able, they figured out how to do it in cash so they didn't have to deal with the crazy interest rates right now. But that was the other unknown Mm -hmm. over their head. And the stress load, I mean, I was just watching it and I really felt for them. I'm like, is there not another way you could do this that would be less stressful? stressful? Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm not saying never move. I mean, I've moved way more than the average bear. I kind of do love to move. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's about finding that place where you have healthy stress. Like healthy is like, all right, this is where I want to take myself, my business, my clients, my family. Um, you know, that's that's healthy. I think like thinking about that and it is is a good thing. Um, but being reactive and creating unnecessary stress. I mean, it seems like that's the advantage we have of having our own businesses. Like we don't have somebody else trying to pull our string saying, oh, you need to transfer to Scranton tomorrow. <laughs> you know, Scranton. A- apologies to anyone who lives in Scranton. Yeah, I've never been Joe. there. I'm sure it's lovely. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess the message of this episode is to be conscious and aware of you're spending really i mean it's like what you're choosing to to spend money on i mean none of it's an asset even your house isn't an asset like i i like the guy what's his name guy cows no it's not guy kawasaki i can never remember the guy's name rich dad poor dad author oh kawasaki it is kawasaki okay so no kiyosaki kiyosaki thank you um and he's like if your house isn't putting money in your pocket every month it's not an asset and you can argue that, and I understand the arguments, but it's a re- I think it's a really good point, which is, you know, because you, you can you can tell yourself like, oh, this is a smart purchase. Everyone says you should buy a house. But like my super rich uncle, when I was thinking about buying a house the first time, he's like, look, he goes, I said, I feel like I'm throwing my money away on rent. Everybody says I'm throwing away my money on rent. He goes, look, <laughs> if you want a house, buy a house. If you don't want a house, do not buy a house. Because, you, you know, you might be throwing your money away on rent, but you're going to be throwing away on repairs once you own the place. So, you know, it, it comes yeah. back to the, the kind of the remit thing where it's like, know what you really love, what you really value and know what you really don't. And don't fall into this trap of like, oh, I need better. I need better. I need a better one of these. And well, and even if you do go for the better you know, make sure that you've got the things I talked about earlier in that personal box put together. You know, you've got some income coming in that's relatively stable, right? You've got um, your, you've got an emergency fund, you're saving for the future. Then you, you look at what's left and you say, yeah, I can afford this, go for it. But again, it's for our own definition of peace of mind and security. Somebody else might have to have, in fact, I have clients who need very, very big, cash um, amounts in their bank accounts to feel safe. And that's all it's, again, this is 100% personal. It's what makes you feel safe. And then you can decide, you know, what's enough. Yeah. So then, you know, we've said repeatedly, your number is going to be very different from my number, Rochelle's number, the person next to you's number. But being thoughtful about it and coming up with some sense, doesn't have to be exact number, but coming up with some sense of like, okay, uh, all, all of the, um, you're looking at the dashboard, everything's in the green, you take your foot off the gas and maybe not have to drive yourself working 60 hours a week, let's say, or even 40. I mean, get down to 25, get down to 20. You know what? Why did you go solo? If you're going to work full time, why not? Th- 
why not put all the risk on your employer and go work at Google? Why not? I mean, obviously, I know the reasons why not, but. <laughs> Notice I was silent. Yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. No, I, we all know. <laughs> yeah, we all know the reasons why not. But but surely some part of you, and when I pulled my list, this was the answer, um, was that they started their businesses. People on my list started their businesses for some version of the word freedom. And that meant more specifically like uh, control over their calendar so they could kind of have a a more a better life work balance, call it a lifestyle business if you want. I don't like that. That term is used pejoratively, but I don't know yeah. why. I mean, like what the hell else would you, I mean, I, you know, your mission yeah. of course, but like, anyway, it's like have some sense of what's on, the dials, at least the dials on your dashboard that you're looking at. Like with me, it's like number of hours I spend working every week and sort of year over year income numbers. And I also look at like my, my email list subscriber count because that's a leading indicator. Those are the, basically some, the three things I look at and then, you know, personal stuff. So at least know what your dials are and then say like, okay, which one's the biggest dial? Like which one's the most important to me? You know, what's your speedometer or what's your gas gauge? Not to extend the metaphor too far and then start to be like, okay, at what point could I take my foot off the gas or, improve one of these, one of these numbers, perhaps at the expense or maybe not at the expense of one of the other ones. Like what are the trade-offs if I make this decision? Well, there's also a qualitative piece in there. And it's, I, I think because there's been a lot of conversation in my group lately about letting uh, clients, certain clients go. It's also the like quality of your time. Like is, are the people that you're serving, do they inspire and energize you? Or are they draining you? Like, are you having fun? And I mean, sometimes, like when you say, you know, take your foot off the gas, the foot off the gas could be, you know what, it's okay, I'm going to let this client or that client or both of them go. And I'm okay with the hit to my income, because I'm going to find somebody better, which happens 99% of the time. Um, But then you've got that freedom to say, yeah, I don't have to carry this thing on my back to feed my family or myself. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we've been jabbering, I think. about it. I think the point has been made. Yeah. It's just spend time thinking about what is enough and what is enough today, what is enough tomorrow, and what is enough for the future that you're designing for yourself. Yeah. Cool. All right, folks. That's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.